0: Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. We come to what one commentator calls the storm center of interpretation for Romans 9, 10, and 11. So the capstone of a a study we've been doing now for a couple of weeks, it's a passage with huge implications on your theology and particularly on your Eschatology. In fact, it may be the single most important verse or set of verses in all of Scripture concerning eschatology. Now, you might say, wow, that sounds important, but I don't even know what eschatology means. That is the study of last things. It takes the Greek word eschatos, which means end or or last, and the word logos for study puts them together. You have eschatology. Eschatology. Now, the good news is, as we come to this so-called storm center and we think about all the implications of it, the good news for us is that Christians are essentially unified on eschatology. They're unified where it matters, we might say, on those issues. Everyone who is a true believer believes the same things when it comes to individual Eschatology, and many of the same things when it comes to what we might say is corporate eschatology. Much like the world and all of its fables, when it comes to the end times, we have a view. We understand the way the world's going to end. The world may tell us it's going to come with devastating floods and melting polar ice caps with global warming. It may tell us that it's going to be by some catastrophic nuclear war. It may tell us that it's going to be by some alien invasion. Whatever it might be that it presents in its culture and movies or all of those things, we know that is not true. We know it because the Scripture tells us so. It ends with the victory of our Savior and with the final redemption of those who believe. in every. Christian believes that everyone is a true Christian every true Christian believes for example in the personal resurrection of the body it's clear in scripture to deny our personal resurrection Paul says is to deny the resurrection of Christ and to deny the resurrection of Christ is to deny your own salvation the forgiveness of your sins so every Christian believes that. Every Christian believes also that Christ will return in a resurrected body and he will, he will exist eternally in the flesh in a resurrected body. Every Christian believes in a final judgment of the loss, a final accounting of those who are saved. Every true Christian believes that in the final accounting, we must be considered in Christ by God in order to be saved. And the way you are found in Christ is by having faith in Christ, believing that He is Lord, believing that God raised Him from the dead, and you will be saved. Your sins are forgiven. The righteousness of Christ is credited to your account. Every true Christian believes in the end that we will spend eternity in a perfect, sinless body, serving God and in perfect fellowship with Him, and it is that That is our hope. So there's so many things that we look to in the Scripture and we agree on when it comes to our doctrine of last things. Our understanding of how the world we're in. We are are unified, we might say, in those essentials. We all glory in that hope. But there's some areas of disagreement as well among good brothers in the faith. Disagreements, we might say, of how God will bring to conclusion the final years or maybe the final century of this earth. The different views are sometimes referred to as millennial views, meaning millennia, mul- millennial meaning 1,000 and has to do with what you believe about the final 1,000 years of earth's history. One view, of course, is known as amillennialism. millennialism, takes a An alpha in the Greek which negates the word and the word millennium and basically it believes there is no millennium. That is to say there is no distinct qualities of the final thousand years of this earth that set it apart from any other time. We exist in an ongoing uh, fellowship with God, an ongoing purpose in the church. The church continues to grow. The preaching of the gospel goes on. It does so under persistent tribulation until the end when Christ returns and judges the earth and all who are in it. The earth is destroyed, a new heavens and a new earth are formed in which we spend eternity with Christ. There is no millennium, that's the end. Those are the essentials of amillennialism and by virtue of the fact that that is the Roman Catholic position on eschatology, it has been the dominant position throughout the history of the church. Postmillennialism is similar in that it sees a final event in world history to be the return of Christ. The world ends that way. The dissolving of the heavens and the earth and its recreation just as millennialist would see it. A postmillennialist believes the same thing. But postmillennialist believe, basically, that there is a distinct period at the end of the world, a time when the world enjoys peace and righteousness. There are variations within that camp, but the general idea is that the gospel will advance, increasingly impacting society and culture through the church, ushering in a period of unprecedented peace and righteousness across the world. And so, post-millennial believers look for a steady growth of the church and a steady growth of its influence on society and culture. And they see evidence of that, even in the general progress toward what some might just simply call civilization. Improvements in health, improvements in human rights, improvements even in international diplomacy. All of these are seen as byproducts of the church's influence on the world. And all of them leading to a final period of worldwide International righteousness and peace. Some postmillennialists believe that this will be literally a thousand years of this kind of peace, but many just generally believe it's an extended period of time with no definitive number of days. There's a third position within Christian society, and that is known as premillennialism. It's a position that teaches that Christ will return prior to or pre. Before a millennium, the church will continue to exist and struggle against the culture and the world until the time of Christ's return. When He comes, by His power and His might, He will crush the enemies of of righteousness. He'll usher in a period of peace and righteousness for 1,000 years. But unlike post-millennial believers who believe that such a worldwide peace will be present with us without Christ... Premillennial believers accept that it's only by the power of Christ with us on the earth that it can be accomplished. It is because Christ is here and ruling in His glorified body, He's reigning from His throne in power, and we, together with Christ, reigning with Him on the earth, as Romans uh, Revelation 5 says, we all experience a period of renewal, spiritually, culturally, we might even say industrially, uh, technologically, politically, and all those avenues. Premillennialists, in other words, look to the future with an optimism, but it's an optimism that's contingent on the return of Christ. And with his return, there will be unprecedented uh, peace, unprecedented renewal, spiritual renewal, and renewal in every sense that will last For 1,000 years before the final end. Now, there are a lot of places, a lot of passages in Scripture, of course, that theologians would use to defend each one of these positions. But each of them, at some point, must grapple with these verses in Romans chapter 11. And particularly, verses 25 through 32, the verses we're going to look at this morning, our church, as you may know, holds to a premillennial view, and Romans eleven twenty-five through 32 are a big reason why we do. And let me begin our time as we look at these today, just by reading for us, beginning there in verse 25, Paul's words. He says, "'Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel.'" Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way all Israel will be saved. As it is written the deliverer will come from Zion. He'll banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel they are enemies for your sake. But regards, as regards election they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so too, uh, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments, and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been His counselor, or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. For those who read all of this, and it seems just a little obscure, for those who even hear discussions of eschatology and immediately roll their eyes, for those who can't imagine anything more irrelevant for their life or for the discussion of the church, or for those who just fear the subject because they think it only leads inevitably to conflict and division, for those who imagine that it's just a subject that is hopelessly mired in fog... We take account of where Paul ends with all of this. He ends with some of the most sublime verbs of of, of doxology and praise that you'll find anywhere in the New Testament. These are important issues because they impact our worship of God. They impact our praise of His wisdom and His character. And so we want to give time and careful attention to what Paul has to teach us In these passages. By the way, don't take Paul's statements there that God's ways are unsearchable or inscrutable to mean that these things are beyond our understanding. Those statements magnify the riches of God's wisdom to devise his plans with so much grace and mercy. The reasons behind that grace and mercy are inscrutable. But the plans themselves are very plain. In fact, Paul says that we're not to be ignorant of them. That's what he says in verse 25. He doesn't want us to be unaware. He doesn't want us to be ignorant. His intention here is not to cloud things up, but to clear things up. So we will not be uninformed, but ultimately we will be in a position of praise. And maybe more importantly... That we won't be, as he says in verse 25, wise in our own sight. Literally wise in yourselves. And the idea is that you would be puffed up. That you would be conceited because of the wrong way of thinking about these things. And just like he's done throughout Romans chapter 11. He is directing these comments particularly at you. If you are a non-Jew. If you are a Gentile. He speaks of the Jewish people here in the third person because they're not his primary audience. You're his primary audience. And he's warning you not to think too highly of yourself or of your wisdom as it relates to your salvation. And particularly as it relates to Israel's unbelief. Don't come with the wrong conclusion based on their rejection, he says. He's already warned, you remember back in verse 20... He's already warned us against pride. And now he is reiterating that warning. As he said back then, Israel was broken off from God's program of salvation, his olive tree, as Paul spells it out. They were broken off from the people of God because of their unbelief. But don't become proud. Don't be wise in your own eyes because of their unbelief. Don't, in other words, assume that you have replaced the Jews As the focus of God's overall purpose in salvation. It's a danger that Paul's worried about. It's a misunderstanding that he wants to clear up in the eyes of the Gentiles. Because he says what is now happening to Israel. It's a mystery. It's a mystery. Not a mystery in the sense of something that's an ongoing secret. We might use mystery that way in our vernacular. That's not the way the New Testament uses it though. Mystery in the New Testament refers to something that was previously unrevealed, but now has been revealed in the New Testament. You hear that clearly in other passages. For example, Ephesians 3, chapter 3, verse 4, Paul writes this, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, As it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Or another passage, 1 Corinthians 2. He says, among the mature, we impart wisdom. Although it's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart the wisdom of God in a mystery. Which God decreed before the ages for our glory. So he says these are mysteries, these are truths that previously other generations weren't made aware of. That wasn't revealed to them, but it has now been revealed to us. So when Paul uses that word mystery here, he uses it with that sense. A mystery. Something previously unrevealed to other generations, but now revealed to the New Testament writers. And Paul says there's a mystery concerning the Jews. Something previously not fully known and now he is revealing it to us and it concerns their salvation that's what the passage is about it's about their ultimate salvation it's about their current state of belief and how that is resolved we might say and so he begins his discussion with this mystery but then Throughout the end of the chapter, or as we move to the end of the chapter, He unfolds this mystery for us in five insights, we might say, insights into Israel's eventual spiritual renewal. Five insights into Israel's eventual spiritual renewal. We're going to take a couple of weeks to look at them, to think deeply about them, and hopefully, to have them lead us all to the same doxological praise that Paul himself arrives at at the end of the chapter. The first insight that he wants us to grasp is right there in verse 25. And it is that Israel's renewal is presently cloaked in temporary hardness. Israel's renewal is presently cloaked in temporary hardness. It doesn't seem obvious that God is doing anything with Israel, it wasn't in Paul's time or it isn't in our time, because right now that is their current state. They are hardened. They are resistant to the gospel. And Paul says so, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. If Israel were responding to the gospel in droves, no one would question their future, no one would have any struggles. With all of the promises that were given to them. No one would have any dilemma at all. But if you remember the entire backdrop of chapters 9, 10, and 11 are the apparent disbelief or the problem, apparent problem I should say, of their disbelief. It was a theological problem because God had made such explicit promises in the Old Testament concerning the renewal of Israel. And his promises were rooted in his gracious election of them, as he says multiple times, apart from all other peoples on the face of the earth. It was distinctive nationally and ethnically. And so Paul has given, up to this point, detailed answers to those who struggle with this dilemma, those who imagine, as he says all the way back in chapter 9, that God's word to Israel had failed. Or even here in chapter 11, verse 1, that God had rejected His people. Or in chapter 11, verse 11, that they had stumbled in order that they might fall, that is, irretrievably fall from God's favor and His promises. Paul's already answered this by telling us that all that is taking place, even in their unbelief, is a part of God's overall plan. It is within the scope of His plan. Because their trespass has led to, in the plan and sovereignty of God, their trespass has led to the salvation of the Gentiles because the salvation of the Gentiles is strategic to the ultimate redemption of Israel. It is a piece of the chain of God's overall plan. That's what Paul said back in verse 11. Through their trespass trespass. Salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. So there's a cause-effect relationship going on. And all of this is why you can't be wise in your own eyes. This is why you can't be proud or assume that you've replaced the Jews as the focus of God's plan. And all along the way, Paul has been describing this current state of disbelief, of stumbling, of trespass, of failure, of rejection. And now he uses the word hardness. And here he brings all of it together and labels it a previous mystery, now revealed. Something previously unknown, but now made plain. So what exactly is the mystery? What is the... What is the thing that wasn't revealed? Well, it wasn't unbelief. I mean, you read throughout the Old Testament, and that's the constant grind of the prophets. They were struggling against the overall unbelief of Israel. And it wasn't the fact that there was going to be a remnant, because that language and that imagery is used time and time and time and again throughout the Old Testament. It wasn't even the fact that there would be a renewal. That was revealed plenty of places. What exactly is the mystery? Well, to understand that, we really need to sort of pull apart three things that Paul says when it comes to the hardness of Israel in the present time. First of all, he says that it is partial. That is to say, when Paul speaks about Israel here, he's speaking about Israel as a whole split into two parts. A part that is hardened and, by implication, a part that's not. Uh, Or to use the language that he's already used throughout this section, there is hardened Israel and then there is remnant Israel. And he's not saying that remnant Israel has been hardened. And he's not saying that unbelieving Israel is only partially hardened. He's saying Israel as a whole is made up of two parts a hardened part, and a not hardened part. He's looking here, of course, at ethnic Israel. It's the only way to really understand the word Israel. It's used previously in this section 9, 10, and 11, 10 times. In every case, it is used to speak of the ethnic people of Israel. There's no sense that Paul has shifted to speak about some spiritual entity here. John Murray says it's exegetically impossible to understand the word any other way but then an ethnic reference to Israel. This is Israel as a group of people distinct from the Gentiles, as Paul will make plain by contrast in the verse with the Gentiles. And Israel as a whole, both parts together, one that's been hardened and one that's been not. No, one that's not, I should say. A collective. Paul's not saying that current remnant Israel is hardened. He's not saying that current unbelieving Israel is partially hardened. But as he's already said, this current state in his own day of partial hardness will one day be replaced with full belief. It's, of course, something he's already introduced. The current state of partial hardness... All the way back in verse 7, he makes mentioned, uh, a mention of how s- some Israelites are hardened. He introduces the contrast. He, he introduces elect remnant in verse 5. Some remnant that is chosen by grace. And he contrasts them in verse 7 with the rest of Israel that is hardened. So the references are clear in the context. The entirety of Israel. He spoke of it with the analogy of an olive tree. In verse 17, he spoke of some of the branches of Israel who had been broken off. Implying that not all of the branches had been broken off, but some of them had. Some of them remained. There is this dual status then within Israel. Israel hardened and Israel believing. And that's the state in which they will remain, we're told, until God, who broke off some of them, grafts them back in. Because, as he says in verse 23, God has the power to do that again. But at the current time, this dual status of Israel, this partial hardening, is key to understand The contrast that Paul's going to make in verse 26 when he speaks of not partial, but all Israel. All Israel being saved. Secondly, he says that this hardness is purposeful. It's purposeful. He says that it's until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so, or in this way all Israel will be saved. It's speaking, it's a a particle indicating the manner in which God is going to save Israel. He's going to save Israel with this fullness of the Gentiles. And in saying that, he's just recapping what he's already said so far throughout the chapter in this interplay between Israel's hardness and Gentile salvation. And because... This is so important for us to grasp. He will come a third time down in verses 30 and 31 to reiterate it again because it's absolutely vital that we understand this lest we become wise in our own eyes, lest we look at the current state of Israel's hardness and just assume that we have replaced them in God's program and in God's covenants. Paul wants to make sure we understand why we are even included in the process to begin with. We're included because there's a purpose. And the purpose is not us. The purpose is the salvation of Israel. As we already saw back in verse 11. Through their trespass salvation has come to the Gentiles. Why? So as to make them jealous. And this current state of their partial hardness will not last forever. But that is its purpose in the present. In the present, their hardness is the reason why God is sending salvation to the Gentiles. And it will continue, the process will, until the full number of Gentiles has come in, meaning that uh, the Gentiles come into the people of God, they come into the covenant relationship with God. And then Israel is saved. This is really the core of the mystery. This is really the component that has never previously been revealed. This is what you really don't find anywhere spoken about prior to this in the Old Testament. You have have references to Israel's sin. You have references to a remnant. You even have references to Gentiles believing You have references to a restoration of Israel, but what you never have anywhere is this idea that God is going to use the the coming in of Gentiles to provoke Israel to jealousy. The fact that it was Israel's hardness that would actually lead God to move among the Gentiles so that He could use us to stir Israel to jealousy. That had never been revealed, but... Paul says, now it is. Now it is. The mystery, in other words, is the sequence. The sequence is the key to Paul's whole section. It's the key to you and I not becoming proud. There is a sequential cause and effect That is intended to put us in our place. A sequential cause and effect that God is using and Paul is emphasizing again and again. Israel rejects God throughout the Old Testament and with the coming of the Messiah, he came into his own, his own did not receive him. God then turns to the Gentiles and begins to work among them while Israel is partially hardened. And then eventually, this Gentile salvation is used by God to stir Israel to jealousy and ultimately to repentance and salvation. These are not simultaneous events. They are sequential events. Which really brings us to the third aspect of this hardness. And that is its timing. It is temporary. That's what Paul says that this hardness has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. A partial hardening is present, but it has a limited time span. It is temporal. It's not just It's not just two works. Simultaneously happen, happening. This is a sequential act. And this is another way that Paul points to it. See some people read all this. And they think yeah. Some Israelites were hardened. Just like some Gentiles are hardened. But then the Gentiles become unhardened. And they get saved. And the, the Jews become unhardened. And they get saved. And all this is happening simultaneously. Right up to the end. That's the way they read even until. Until. This is all happening right up until the end. So, God will continue to save Jews, continue to save Gentiles simultaneously, but they don't necessarily see any action by God beyond that. Or the two problems with that particular view two problems with what we might call the simultaneous view. The first is grammatical. Paul uses this temporal preposition, excuse me if I speak to the three Greek scholars among us this morning, but he uses this temporal um, particle, akri, it's a a preposition. And in some contexts, it has a spatial sense, you know, speaking of distance. But when it is referred to in the context of time, it is used in a temporal sense. And in those cases, 37 I believe there are, Most of the time it's used in the present, it's used with a present tense verb. But here, it's not. It's unusually followed by an aorist subjunctive indicating a future contingency. That is, it speaks of a sequence of events, not simultaneous events. Grammatically, it would be difficult to make this simultaneous without the presence of a present tense verb. But secondly, and maybe more importantly, is the context. That Paul has made central to his whole argument our understanding of the role that we have in the overall plan that he has for Israel. He's pointed to this sequential action again and again so that when we read this, the most natural reading is to think of this as a coming time in Israel's makeup when there will be a sudden change. They will go from partially hardened to fully believing on the earth. There's a contrast. And Paul drives it home. The contingency is the fullness of the Gentiles the contingency that he's pointing us to is the time when that is complete. That pattern Paul's been laying out of this fullness of Gentiles is the cause of the renewal of Israel. And until that action is complete, until the cause is in place, the fullness cannot begin. That's all. All exactly as Paul has explained it in that olive tree analogy. It Fits perfectly with what he said, right? Branches were broken off. Paul says in verse 20, that is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but kindness toward you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. God can do with you Gentiles however he wants. And even if they, he says, do not continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what was by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, Contrary to nature, into the cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Paul says it's only natural that we would expect that. This is what we anticipate. Peter refers to it as the times of refreshing that were prophesied in the Old Testament. This is the time of renewal, That we look forward to. Worldwide renewal. As well as renewal among the people of God. It isn't exclusive. To any ethnic group. As Paul will go on to say. Down in verses 31 and 32. In fact. It is going to be a grand demonstration. Of his impartiality. How he in his wisdom. And in his knowledge. Put together a plan. That exalts his mercy. And shows it impartially to all people. It is what we consider the millennium. Those times of refreshing, that time of renewal, when God, after so many centuries, after so many millennium of demonstration of Israel's utter incapability to follow their God, with no Words of excuse, nothing left to say but to place their hand over their mouth. God finally shows his mercy so that no man can boast. So that there's no question that those who stand with him stand with him because of grace and mercy. Well, that's just one of the insights. There are four others that we will enjoy getting into in the coming weeks. But we're grateful. We're grateful knowing how unworthy we are to even be a part of this entire process. Stand together with me and we'll be dismissed with a word of prayer and and with a song. Father, we are truly thankful that you have made known to us these mysteries, that you've made known to us the mercy shown to us in Christ poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Helps us to see, Lord, that we have no basis, no claim of anything before you. Our very existence within the people of God, it serves one purpose. And that is to glorify your wisdom. To glorify your faithfulness and your majesty. So help us, Lord, this day to see ourselves that way. In everything that we do. In our praise. In our service of one another. In our acts of sacrifice and obedience. We exist for that reason. That your name might be magnified through us. We offer ourselves again to that purpose Lord. And we say with our Savior. Your will be done. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.